Welcome to Everyday Wellness. I'm Kelly Donahue, clinical health psychologist, here with my colleague, Cynthia Thurlow. I'm a nurse practitioner, and we are both super passionate about food, here to educate, inspire, and advocate for you for your best health. Hey, hey, wanted to come to you today and talk to you about some of the things that Kelly and I are really loving these days. And one of them are the Dry Farm Wines. And I'm not sure how much you know about this company, but what really makes them different and unique is that they are sourcing wines from organic vineyards where there are low to no sugar or carbs. And interestingly enough, most modern wines have more sugar than a liter of soda. Scary, right? They're lower in alcohol, they're lower in sulfites, and sulfites are kind of those things that can cause a lot of uh, symptoms. You know, sometimes people will get headaches and histamine responses, etc. They are one of our sponsors for our podcast, and we'd love for you to take advantage of trying out some of their wines. They have lots of options. I love their rosés, but you can go to www.dryfarmwines.com backslash Cynthia Thurlow and you can check out what they have there and try some things out and definitely let us know what you think. Hello, we are so excited to have with us today, Dr. Sean Baker. He's not only a doctor, but he's also an athlete, a father, and a proponent of the carnivorous lifestyle. His list of achievements is as heavy as the weight he can lift and includes serving as the chief of orthopedics as an orthopedic surgeon for several high establishments. And he has a past history as a nuclear weapons combat commander. And there's more. He's also been the gold medal holder for the Texas Strongman and in the top five for the USA Strongest Man contest. All of his physical accomplishments, including those and many more, have been attained as a lifetime drug-free athlete. Sean, we're so glad to have you here today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for, so much, and I look forward to our discussion. Yeah, no, no, it's so nice to, uh, to see you outside of the Twitter realm where I know that we initially met, but I'd love to hear the journey. How did you come to the uh, carnivore diet? Uh, obviously, you were probably using a different strategy before nutritionally, but what was the process and, and how did that evolve for you? Yeah, so like I said, I'm, I'm in my uh, sort of early 50s now. And, and you know, as, as uh, Kelly had mentioned, I've been an athlete my whole life and I've trained extremely hard and was fortunate to be very successful. And despite all the training and all the exercise and, and you know, that sort of stuff, I was finding that by the time I hit my mid 40s that I started to notice that my health was not going in the direction I would like it to, and particularly as a physician. You, know, you think you, you can solve all the health problems and I found mm-hmm. that no matter how much I, uh, I couldn't you know like we hear you can't have a bad diet so on and so forth and not, not that my diet was necessarily bad I wasn't just eating junk food constantly but I was eating you know a pretty decent amount and uh, what many people would consider you know relatively balanced diet healthy diet and but despite that um, you know I was having problems I was having early evidence of metabolic syndrome sleep apnea hypertension you know which is part of metabolic syndrome I was at a body weight where, you know, I'd, I'd competed in strength sports for so many years. And at that time, I was you know, 280, 285 pounds. Uh, I mean, I'm tall, so it wasn't like I was obese, but I was just a big guy and uh, decided that, you know, I just don't want to do this anymore. I'm in my mid 40s and, you know, that time has kind of passed. And so, you know, I, I started looking at nutrition and I just, you know, I did what I thought was the right thing, which is what we're told, you know, just eat less, exercise more, mm-hmm. low fat, high fiber. And to be honest, that worked. 
I mean, I dropped 50 pounds in three months. I mean, it was, it was not hard. I mean, I shouldn't say it wasn't hard. I mean, I had, I, I was able to do it just by being consistent and disciplined about it. But when I arrived there, I mean, while I was leaner and probably, you know, arguably healthier, clearly healthier, I was not in a place where I could sustain. I was miserable. I mean, I was literally hungry all the time. I was grouchy. The nurses at the office said, hey, we like the fat Dr. Baker better because you're kind of an ass. <laughs> it was true. I mean, I was just, you know, just short-tempered and you always, you know, it's constantly thinking about food and, and constantly denying yourself food. And so I, that was something I, I couldn't, you know, and then exercising, you know, quite a bit. Not something I could sustain, you know, for, for a long period of time. So then I kind of just started to look into the nutritional options. And then, then I found basically a paleo, primal style diet, diet a la Mark Sisson and whatnot, and, and embraced that for, for a couple of years and felt that, you know, I continued to maintain, you know, a good body composition, good health, uh, and enjoy the food. But, that, you know, then I just got down the rabbit hole of looking at nutrition and then kind of went into the low carb sphere and finally a ketogenic style. And then I started applying that to my patients with good, with good success, not only with weight loss, but also with, you know, mitigation of, of orthopedic problems. You know, I'd see people with bad knee arthritis that were ready for a knee replacement. I'd put them on a ketogenic diet. They would lose weight or sometimes they wouldn't lose weight right away, but they were, they would often see that their symptoms would just resolve completely. And that really wow. was, was, was something interesting because, you know, we always hear, well, if you lose weight, you're going to do better. But I was seeing people in the absence of weight loss, seeing their symptoms resolve. So we knew it was beyond just mechanical loading. It was something to do with the biology, the inflammation. And, you know, and then eventually for my own personal reasons, I, I, I kind of started reading about, you know, as an athlete, because I wanted to still wanted to compete and I'm still competing as an athlete. Looking at performance, I started just to kind of read about athletes from days gone by using, you know, meat-based diets basically to improve performance. And I thought, well, and at this time I had discovered a community of people that were doing an all-meat diet. And I thought that was just peculiar and interesting. And I thought, why not just try it for a little bit? So I dabbled with it for, you know, a few days at a time, a week or two here and there. And then finally a 30-day period of time. At that point, I was already starting to get a little bit of traction on social media. And so a lot of people took it with interest and we kind of did it as a joke. And, you know, people were kidding, saying, hey, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna have a heart attack. Are you gonna, you know, gonna die of scurvy? Is your colon gonna fall out from lack of fiber, so on and so forth. And of course, none of that happened. And at the end of the 30 days, I said, well, I'm gonna go back to my more ketogenic style of diet with, you know, the fruits and the vegetables and the, you know, the, the, the low carb whatevers. And I mean, I did it for a day and I just didn't feel good. I, I literally started, you know, seeing the symptoms that had that, that improved over those 30 days come right back. And so I thought, you know, knowing what I knew about nutrition at that point, I, did, I didn't really feel that there was a significant downside to remaining on a carnivorous style diet. And so I went back to it. And now I'm, you know, basically three years later, still doing it and still enjoying it and, and uh, thriving. You know, it's just, I think it's really amazing when you have Western medicine trained healthcare providers who start to question the dogma with which we were educated. And, and so that's always the, the context. I always say that it is indeed a rabbit hole when you start, you know, jumping down this, this path of, you know, questioning what we were schooled in. I mean, I worked in cardiology as a nurse practitioner for 16 years. And what did I tell every single one of my patients? You know, sugar, you know, eat as much sugar as you want, you know, low cal low cholesterol, low fat is where we want to go. They were, you know, dealing with, you know, escalating rates of diabetes. Um, they had more vascular disease and, and you start to wonder, you know, some of the things that we, that we learned really are, are not proving to um, be particularly, you know, successful strategies long-term. So it's interesting that you, you went through that yourself. And, and certainly for so many of us, when we start questioning things, I know a lot of my peers thought I was nuts. I mean, when I would talk to people about food, they were like, 
there's no value in food, but we've come to find out that's, that's clearly not the case. I love what you said about helping clients who are patients at that time who were in pain. I think that as a health psychologist, I get a lot of chronic pain clients and they, most of them have no idea that what they eat has an influence on how they could feel and or doctors send them to me because they're depressed and they're depressed because they're in pain all of the time. So it's, it's really interesting that this tool and diet in general can, can help someone be in less pain. But I'd like to, just for the sake of clarity, have you define what a carnivore diet is, at least to you? And then if you could just take us through what you eat in a typical day, please. Yeah, so this is a this is a very controversial, I mean, somewhat of a controversial topic about what a carnivore diet is. And the way I like to define it is it is a diet that focuses on you know, nutrient-dense animal foods with the either elimination or limitation of plants as necessary for, for you know, improving health. So it's not a dogma, it's not uh, an ideology, it's just saying like, let's focus on the results, understand that, you know, animal-based products, you know, meat and so on and so forth are incredibly nutritionally dense. I mean, I know the comment about uh, Cynthia talking about the only thing she can tolerate. I just got back from a, a conference in Malaysia and one of the presenters there was looking at food sensitivity studies using immunoglobulins and he found that in 20 years, looking at about a quarter of a million tests every year, they almost never see a reactivity to particularly red meat, you know, and, it, and it's, you know, so from, from these food sensitivity standpoints, it is a very inert uh, product and it, it kind of serves, in my view, as kind of a reset button for a lot of health issues. And I think a lot of that, a lot of that as we're finding, does have a role arise, arriving from the gut. And so I tell people, you know, many people need to figure it out by going fairly, you know, meat-based only. And then as time goes, they may find that they can add a few foods. But I mean, if, if we look at our current Western diet, it's a plant-based diet. I mean, it's already 70% plus plant products. You know, unfortunately, most of that is sugar, grain, seed oils, and so on and so forth in, in, the, in the processed foods. But even outside of that, you know, the meat we eat in the United States, which is a quote-unquote meat-heavy country, is only about 10, 15% of our diet. You know, the other percentage is made up by dairy, which I, I think has a different issue. But when we talk about just meat, um, we don't eat very much of it. We eat, you know, 85% of our diet is something else. And, you know, we're sitting there blaming this small component of the diet for all the ills. And we're not looking at, you know, the, the big elephant in the room, which is, in my view, the, sh the sugars, the oils, the, the, the processed uh, carbohydrates is being the main driver. You know, and it's interesting, you know, when I find when, when I'm having conversations with my own patients that when they start eating more animal protein, you know, beef, pork, bison, et cetera, they're so satiated, they have no desire to, uh, you know, raid their, their pantry where they have, you know, whether it's ice cream in the, in the freezer or chocolate or other types of indulgences that they just feel intrinsically much more um, settled, you know, they, they feel much more satiated, they're not looking for the junk uh, when they eat a more plant-based diet, which I find fascinating. Yeah, I think there's two, you know, there's, there's two sort of competing philosophies. Obviously, there's, there's people that are having success on a plant-based diet, but I think that's generally due to caloric restriction, you know, I mean, and, 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 and often involuntary because much of what they eat, you know, particularly the high fiber foods just passes right through you. So you, and you, and much of the nutrition that goes with it is bound up in the fiber. And so you lose just, you're just losing nutrition. And so you kind of just, you know, you lose weight and that does have a benefit, but there's a difference between, you know, being satiated because of 
the nutrient density of the food versus being satiated because of the bulk of the food. You know, like I said, mm -hmm. if I if I put somebody on a flavored cardboard diet and, and force them to eat a bunch of cardboard, you know, they they would probably not want to eat as much because they you know be kind of full from that and just the bulk, <laughs> and, and then their intestines would be because you know honestly cardboard is just cellulose. I mean, it's the same mm -hmm. stuff that's in fiber, and as you guys may or may not know, they they actually literally put sawdust in much of our food as a filler or bulking agent. So yeah. it's something that you know we. I would argue you're not well designed to to tolerate, but uh, you know it's there anyway. So um, yeah, the satiation aspect is very important. Um, it doesn't work for everybody, but for most people, it is. I mean, most people find that they're they're satisfied with much less food. Um, you know, what I look at, you know, according to the USDA data, you know, there's something like two thousand pounds the average American eats, you know, per year, and people doing this carnivore diet are eating, you know, a fraction of that. They're eating maybe you know, 500, 600, 700 pounds. So they're eating a lot less overall volume and producing a lot less waste. You know, it's not going, it's not all going to the toilets and the landfills like our, you know, more of a plant-based diet with all the waste products and packaging and, you know, fruit that goes in the garbage and fruit that never makes it to your table because it gets thrown away before it's hard, you know, after it's harvested. So, um, you know, it's, it's a different, you have to frame things differently. I, I mean, I, I think we have a discussion where we frame everything through one person's opinion, but when we start to branch out and say, well, let's look at, for instance, and I know this is kind of going off topic a little bit, but let's look at, you know, environmental impact. And we're saying, well, you know, you know, meat is more expensive environmentally potentially, which is, you know, arguably true. But if we look at the healthcare industry, the healthcare industry creates 10% of our greenhouse gases. The cattle industry uh, accounts for 2%. So you're like, well, if I'm no longer contributing to the healthcare industry, that is, I've got off all my medications, I'm not having to go to the doctor every two weeks, you know, contributing to all that greenhouse gas because I'm eating meat, what's, what's the payoff there? So it's, you know, it's the way we have to frame the, frame the, uh, the argument, I suppose. Can you paint a picture for us of what a typical day of food looks like for you? Yeah, so uh, most days uh, it is probably 98% uh, of my food is coming from some sort of red meat. I mean, I find that to be the most satisfying, most satiating. My body seems to do the best on that. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs 
in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water and you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bioptimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. Product with five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. To that, I'll add a little bit of seafood. Like for instance, this morning I had two, you know, ribeye steaks, about two and a half pounds, and I had a half dozen eggs and about a dozen shrimp. So that would be like one of those things where I would add to that. So I, I occasionally add seafood, occasionally I'll add uh, uh, eggs. Once in a while, I'll put some dairy in there just, you know, because I like it quite honestly. I mean, sometimes there'll be spices on my food, sometimes not. Often it's just salt. I mean, I find that pretty satisfying. I mean, I rarely, if ever, have anything outside of that. I mean, I had a piece of birthday cake on one of my children's birthday just to kind of you know, celebrate with them and, um, I got, I got pretty, you know, I didn't feel particularly good after that. How did it make you feel? <laughs> yeah, it was kind of interesting. I did it twice. I did once for my son and once for my daughter. And the one, it was just kind of funny. The one my son had, I think it had, I don't know what the ingredients were. It was like a chocolate type of cake. And I ate it and literally ended up vomiting afterwards mm. after, after two, you know. And then I, oh my, my daughter had a cheesecake and I ate it and I was fine. So it's, you know, it's interesting, you know, what you might be able to tolerate and what you might not be able to tolerate. It's just, um, but yeah, my, my diet is, is mostly red meat. I'm not a big proponent. I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm not a proponent of that. I personally don't eat much in the way of organ meats. Uh, I just don't find them uh, all that appealing. I mean, I've tried them many, many times and every time and I've had some of the best chefs in the world make this stuff for me. And I'm just like, eh, you know, I mean, I like foie gras in France. I'll say that, but uh, <laughs> um, 
I, I've, I've not had any detrimental effects from not including them in my diet, although many people do include them, and I certainly don't discourage anybody from doing that. I think if it works for you, great, do it. But I don't find that that is an absolute necessity for, for, for the general population to either survive or even thrive. You know, it's interesting. I grew up with an Italian mom and she would make liver and bacon with some frequency, much to my brother and I's, you know, we just loathed it. And the irony is now the only way I can eat liver is I have to freeze it in little tiny bites and I'll just pop it in my mouth. That's the only way I can tolerate it. So I completely understand. I know there are a lot of organ meat aficionados that are out there, but it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge to definitely consume it and not uh, feel like it's, um, uh, what did my brother and I used to call? We used to talk about how the bacon would somehow mask the kind of very metallic taste of, of calf's liver, but my mother used to make that on the regular as kids. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like I said, obviously there's, there's quite a bit of nutrition in, in mm -hmm. organ meats and uh, many people have prized them or, or, or at least considered them delicacies and certainly most most populations tend to eat them, particularly uh, indigenous populations. And I think largely because they just don't waste food. I mean, that's, Correct. that's yeah. food there. And so whether or not um, it is giving you superpowers, which some people believe, I, I, you know, I don't doubt for some people that works, but I, but I, like I said, I've had the opportunity to observe now literally tens of thousands of people on this diet and surveyed them and asked them directly and for forms of surveys and, Really, I mean, the, the benefits that people are getting with and without it are, are pretty similar. So I, 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 I just try to keep an open mind and, and, and not to get too uh, prescriptive or too sort of uh, narrow or dogmatic because I think for many people, that's a, that's a non-negotiable thing. Some people like, so what I would say is if your diet's gonna fail, it's gonna fail for two major reasons. One is you're constantly hungry or two, you don't like the food. And so if I tell you you've gotta eat raw brains as part of this diet, no one's going to, I mean, a few people want to do it. Many people will not do that just on, on that per point alone. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's making it as accessible and as approachable to as many people in the population as you can, because many people are limited by, you know, palate or, you know, or, or, you know, or money. I mean, quite honestly, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of people that can't afford to eat the real high end stuff. And to say that's the only way you can get healthy is, is a huge disservice to, Otherwise, you know, really potentially millions of people, which, you know, I could do very well just eating cheap ground beef from Walmart if that's what they can afford. And, and, it, and it seems to work extremely well as well. Yeah. Let's turn to the research for a little bit. Can you talk about the research? And, and again, it sort of flip-flops one day meat is good, next day meat is bad. But can you talk about the research that indicates that there are negative health effects of eating meat? Yeah, so I mean, it's not that the research has changed, you know, as you guys are probably aware, there's a recent huge study, a three-year, one of the largest studies in red meat ever done by the Nutrix organization. And their conclusion was that, you know, the, the, the breadth of the evidence, you know, the totality of the evidence is basically very weak associations. And so it's not strong enough to indicate that there's any real negative effect that you can really hang your hat on. There might be a slight disadvantage to consuming meat. And if so, it's so small and the evidence for that is so weak that it's like, it's, it's almost nothing. It's like they say, we really haven't found out anything. All this research, you know, Professor John Anittis out of Stanford, one of the, you know, most well-published guys in the world of public health has said the same thing. He said, look, our nutrition science on whole, on average, looking at all these population studies using food frequency data, 
uh, questionnaires is just bad science. And it's so riddled with confounders, with bias, with statistical problems that we should just sort of say, hey, look, we need to step away from that and actually do real science. And so what the Nutrix organization did was looked at that and they said, look, we agree that this standard of evidence is so, so poor, we're gonna, we're gonna preference higher quality studies. Now, the problem is there's not a lot of higher quality studies out there. There's only a few. And they looked at the Women's Health Initiative and saw that in that study, you know, the negative effects of red meat were basically none. I mean, it was really none. And so, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just an overall sort of uh, comment on nutrition science in general. And, and, and that's what we see. One week coffee's bad for us. You know, one week coffee's bad, next week it's good. One week eggs are bad, next week it's good. Now it's red meat is bad, now red meat is not bad. And so it's very confusing for the average person to, uh, you know, try to figure out what to eat. Now, the nice thing about people on a fully carnivorous diet is you, you eliminate all those confounding variables, you know. You know, you don't have, well, how much French fries did they eat with their hamburger? How much, how much Cokes did they, how many Cokes did they have? And so on and so forth. And so what we're seeing emerged consistently is these people are just getting healthy. They're coming off medications. They are, you know, seeing for the first time in their lives. Some of these people with chronic depression or bipolar disorder or gastrointestinal illnesses like ulcerative colitis and night irritable bowel syndrome and psoriasis and joint pain, rheumatoid arthritis, and all these things are getting better. And it's, it's not one or two now, it's literally tens of thousands of folks. So what will be nice and what will be happening, and I'm, I'm pretty pleased to announce that we're going to have a major study coming out with, with a you know, major research institute with a major, major researcher that everybody's gonna know when it comes out. I'm not, I'm not at liberty to say who that is just yet, but it'll be coming out uh, probably later this year, or at least the study will begin later this year, results will probably be published early next year. And so we're gonna to start to see that, and then hopefully we can actually study people on these, you know, for all the criticisms on these restrictive diets, they do have their utility in telling us what's going on when you isolate that type of food, you know, and, and you could argue you could arguably die, you know, study people that eat like a fruit only diet, like fruitarians and say, well, what, what's the real benefit of fruitarianism? And you could say, well, maybe my, my, my thought would be, well, let's look at their triglycerides. Let's look at their liver fat. Let's maybe look at their bone mineral density. You know, of course I'm biased and I, I, I want to say that I don't think that's the right way to do it, but you could study these sort of, some people call them crazy people like myself or, you know, and then to see what's actually going on here when we eliminate all these other confounders. It's not unethical because these people are voluntarily doing it themselves. And, you know, it's, 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 you know, whether they are getting healthy or not is, you know, up to, I guess that's to, that's to determine. No, that's really great because I think one of the, one of the really critical pieces with a lot of these, you know, newer, newer, nutritional kind of focuses is that it's getting people back to more nutrient dense whole foods as opposed to processed foods. And that's certainly hugely beneficial. Now, a lot of the questions I was getting heading into this podcast episode was people wanted to have a sense, and this won't surprise anyone that I'm asking this question, when did you start becoming interested in intermittent fasting? And how did that kind of, how did that weigh into not only your training, but also the nutritional focus that you take with the carnivore diet? Yeah, so my sort of uh, relationship with intermittent fasting is not so much that I set a stopwatch and say, okay, today I'm going to eat, you know, in an in a eight-hour eating window. I mean, what I've seen as a natural consequence of eating a nutrient-dense diet is that occurs naturally. And you think about it, you know, the intermittent fasting is, is a tool people can use, but it's an artificial 
sort of overlay on what we would have eaten as, you know, and again, I, I take a, a ancestral or an evolutionary mm -hmm. approach to nutrition. And I, I believe that we are not designed to eat every 15 minutes. Right. And I think that is not in our best interest. It's certainly in the interest of the snack food industry who has pushed for decades now that, you know, oh my gosh, don't let your blood sink, sugar sink just a little bit. You have, <laughs> have a juice box, have a granola bar. And we see it in our kids at school. I mean, you can't go to, you can't send a second grader to school without two snacks. I mean, it's just like, you know, they're going to die. And when I was a kid, I mean, there was something called, it was going to spoil your appetite for dinner. When I come home from school, mom, I'm hungry. And they'd say, hey, we're having dinner in two hours. Wait. Now the kid comes home from school and it's like, here you go. Here's a snack. Here's a piece of string cheese. Here's a, here's a granola bar. Here's a, here's a fruit leather or something like that. And I don't think that's how we were designed. Or like, I think that's, I don't think that's in our best interest, you know, because we see constant, you know, stimulation of insulin, constant blood sugar spikes, constant mTOR spikes. You know, people talk about protein and mTOR, but it's just food, any food, any calories are going to stim stimulate the mTOR. And so when we talk about the negative effects of mTOR and aging and cancer, the more frequently you eat, uh, it, there's, there's probably issues with that. Now, I think there's exceptions with people that are training very hard and, and you know, they're building muscle and growth, and then there's a differential expression, whereas, uh, you know, you stimulate the, the mTOR in the muscle, but you may not stimulate it in the liver and the adipose tissue and some of the other places where you're, you're seeing problems. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I naturally, if I'm, if I'm left to my own appetite, I'll eat twice a day, sometimes mm -hmm. once a day, depending on what's going on. Like right now, as I said, I, I just got back from Malaysia. I lost some weight. I'm trying to gain weight. So I'm going to force myself to eat outside of my appetite. So I might eat three meals a day, maybe even four for a couple of days to try to put some of that, that weight back on that, I, that, I, that, I, that impacts me from a performance standpoint. And from an athletic standpoint, quite honestly, I think it's a combination of one, the right type of food. I think meat is very much beneficial for recovery, for uh, you know, building muscle. I mean, we know that the requirements to build muscle are protein, leucine, caloric, caloric surplus, and then you know, obviously the training and the recovery. And so those things are, uh, you know, pretty nicely line up with that. But I, but I, I have not seen any in me, any significant detriment to eating infrequently and training very hard. And in fact, I was able to, you know, break the number of world records, you know, this concept two crazy thing that I do uh, while eating an all meat diet and sometimes fasted. You know, I, I've, I've literally gone down and broken a world track world record while fasted. So, wow. um, so it, it's, it's kind of interesting uh, as to, uh, how that, how that interplay occurs. But I think when we look at performance over the long term, you know, I, I know there's people that talk about, you know, you can inject this carbohydrate right before training and it'll have a benefit, uh, you know, performance benefit. And that's certainly true in many studies. However, if that leads to maybe chronic inflammation, GI, GI problems, joint pain, which in my case, it seems to, you know, cause I experimented with that. I've experimented with cyclic ketogenic diet, targeted ketogenic diets where I would bolus myself with carbohydrates and all I would find is minimal performance gain, but an increase in, you know, GI distress or even even inflammation, worse recovery, continue, you know, more pain, which ultimately makes me less likely to want to train. You know, my knees hurt. I don't feel like squatting, you know? And so it's kind of a, you know, what happens over the long haul? Yeah. So if someone came to you and said, hey, I'm just, I'm not feeling great. I'm maybe somewhere between standard American diet and ketogenic diet, and I'm considering giving this carnivore diet a go, how would you recommend that they get started? Just kind of jumping in and, and going on at full bore or kind of transitioning into it? You know, I think that uh, 
you know, for the average person, you know, maybe someone who's kind of somewhat sick, maybe middle-aged with metabolic issues, probably a taper makes sense for a lot of people. I know there's people who will disagree with that. And, and you can certainly go whole hog, you know, just jump in day one. And for some people, the transition is pretty smooth. But for many people, that transition can smack them in the face pretty hard and, and discourage them and make them want to quit. And so the way I did it was, you know, I would do a couple of days here and there. I would start out with just a carnivorous meal, maybe steak and eggs. And I didn't have hash browns or toast or, or orange juice or whatever the standard breakfast would be. And see, I tolerated that. And, you know, quite honestly, I felt pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, there are a couple issues, you know, one, when we taper fiber out of the diet, some people will have, you know, issues, you know, with, with their bowel transition. And so, so for some people, it is actually uh, diarrhea or loose stools. And other people, it's, it's, it's sort of a feeling of uh, constipation, which is, you know, really what happens is because you're not wasting any food anymore, you know, when we're on a high fiber diet, remember all that fiber just passes right through us, we waste it all. So when you're on a meat-based diet, everything you eat pretty much gets digested and absorbed, and there's very little waste. And so you, you have this sort of thing that, you know, when you're having two, three bowel movements a day, now you're having one every two or three days, and it's very disconcerting for some people. But there's no, no evidence to show that that is in itself harmful. It doesn't mean that you're constipated. But so tapering off fiber, you know, maybe, maybe say you're going to plan on doing this next month. You know, I would say spend 30 days tapering down your fiber. Uh, and then the other issue that some people are, are running into, and we discovered this later on, is a phenomenon of oxalate dumping. And so mm -hmm. we know that particularly many people on a ketogenic diet, you know, eating healthy, you know, spinach and berries and almond flour and almonds and chocolate and things like that have, you know, relatively high amounts of oxalates in their diet. And we know that the oxalates, most people are familiar with oxalates in the term, in the, in the form of kidney stones, kidney stones, 80% of all. 80% of kidney stones are oxalates, calcium oxalate stones, but the oxalates actually will deposit in all kinds of tissues outside the kidneys, the muscle, the joints, you know, the eye, the brain, the skin. And, and so when you go from a, you know, a steady state of relatively high levels of oxalates and you dramatically drop it down, some of those oxalates that are in, you know, in crystallized form will now, because of the diffusion gradient, uh, become back into solute, they'll go back into serum, will circulate around and they may redeposit somewhere else. And so some people will see joint pain, they'll have rashes, they'll have GI problems. Some people even see oxalates coming out the skin. This isn't a... Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one, -on -one, interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 
12 month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armra Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armra's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced. And it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out a super common phenomenon, but for those people that it occurs in, it can be fairly distressing for them. So for some people that may also need to do an oxalate taper as well. And I refer you guys to folks like Sally Norton and others that are really, you know, well-versed in the oxalate argument. Well, and it's interesting. I know before we jumped on today, we were talking a little bit about, uh, you know, my hospitalization earlier this year, I was in the hospital for 13 days almost died, um, but managed to get my way out. And I really do feel that a carnivore-based diet is, is what healed me. What's ironic is when you mentioned the oxalates, uh, I, they, I, I've had to remove all of them from my diet because they did start creating that kind of dumping syndrome on top of everything else that was going on. So I think they're, you know, most of the oxalates tend to be healthier foods, but you know, I like to think of kale as killer kale. 
we had another guest on who um, mentioned that, you know, kale is, is one of those foods that people, you know, they, they juice it, they eat it constantly, and they don't realize that for a lot of people, it can be hugely inflammatory. So you start thinking about kale and spinach and other such foods, you know, the berries that you mentioned and, um, you know, the nuts and seeds, and a lot of those things can be very inflammatory. So although they're healthy foods, may not be serving your body or your needs as they did previously. And the other caveat I want to make sure I mention is, what serves us per se in our 20s and 30s may not serve us as we get older. And that's certainly something that I have found to be the case. You know, thinking about really inflammatory foods, you know, a lot of what's in our food supply, the processed food supply, you know, soy and dairy and gluten and grains, for a lot of people, they suddenly become really intolerant to them. And, and yet, if you pull them out of your diet, give your body an opportunity to heal and to feel better, you may find that you need to transition to a more um, you know, meat and, and protein focused diet uh, and, you know, not including a lot of those fibrously dense foods that we're conditioned to believe work for all of our bodies. Yeah, there's a, there's sort of a, a uh, sort of a mystique around fiber as this sort of, you know, magical, uh, you know, rainbows and unicorn power <laughs> that is going to save us. And, you know, again, this all, this all stems from this same body of evidence, which is this nutritional epidemiology. And so we, we see people that eat a high fiber diet, you, you know, and that's usually fruits, vegetables, whole grains. Usually what's going on is that's displacing Twinkies, Doritos, and you know, donuts. And, and so, I mean, it's, it's, of course, it's going to be uh, an improvement there. But at the same time, like I said, I think it's very, um, I think we have to respect the fact that even healthy foods, you know, uh, individually may have a negative effect on people. And it's not that that food is generally bad. It's just in your particular situation, you may not tolerate nuts or spinach or, or yeah. whatever. And it, it is, it is inflammatory. It may be causing gut permeability issues. And, and so we just have to sort of investigate, investigate that. And I think, you know, my, my goal and my purpose is not to say everybody in the world needs to be on a carnivore diet. It's right for everybody. I've never said that, but I, but I do think for people that are struggling to figure out health issues, whether it's obesity or arthritis or, you know, even mental health issues, food does play a role. It plays a huge role. And, and to dismiss that is, in my view, I mean, just a very sad, it's a sad reflection on, on the medical system because what happens is we're so frustrated with trying to do lifestyle medicine on a, on a largely non-compliant population mm -hmm. and often giving them the wrong advice. And we've got a food environment that just, you know, it's, it's, it's like an uphill battle. It's like Sisyphus, you know, trying to push mm -hmm. that rock up the hill. You just yeah. keep getting smashed by you know, this, this, this junk food is everywhere. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, when you, when you sort of sit back and say, okay, let, let's sort of take the theory that food is causing disease or contributing to disease and, and assume it is, then you have to figure out, well, how do I figure this, this sort of problem out for me personally? Well, I liken it to remember the game of Clue. We, you know, we all played as a kid, you know, when you've got the eight characters, Colonel Mustard and you know, Mrs. Peacock and Professor Green and all these guys in the different rooms and they all have the candlestick and the dagger and the, you know, the rope. And you've got, you know, you've got eight characters and it takes you, you know, an hour to figure out who did it. So when you say you've got foods and now you're eating not eight different foods, but hundreds of different types of foods, maybe even thousands of ingredients, and you're trying to figure out who done it, man, it could take you decades or even your whole life or most people never figure it out. But when you cut it down to, okay, I'm gonna go to one ingredient, meat, it seems to be pretty safe. You know, maybe all these things go away. Now I can say, okay, now what about, you know, what about blueberries? Do they give me, give me trouble? You can add them back one at a time, figure it out. And then you can find out what diet ultimately 
um, sort of works for you overall. And, you know, I, I recommend most people for a carnivore cell diet, you know, 90 days seems to be a pretty good assessment. Most people have made the transition at that point. It gives you a good sense of where you are. And most people that do that successfully, they manage to stick around for 90 days. Some of them just keep doing it like myself. They're like, hey, I feel great. I don't, I don't, I don't miss the other food. That's a, that's a thing from a psychologic standpoint. Food addiction is huge. Sugar cravings are real. People have a really hard time giving that stuff up. But I find uniquely with a carnivore diet is those cravings are very much either fully eliminated or they're very much made very, very easy to deal with. And so a lot of people for the first time in their life see that, hey, I can, I can pass on the chocolate cake and I don't fall to the peer pressure. And when I'm a little bit hungry, I don't just start shoving cookies in my face, um, which is what most people end up doing. You know, if you're on a diet, you're on a low fat diet, you know, you're, you're good and disciplined for two or three weeks. And then all of a sudden it's like, man, give me the Ben and Jerry's and you just you know, you sneak in the night. Yeah. Of you go out for a salad and you're good at the restaurant and everybody thinks you're great. And then you get home at, you know, 11 o'clock at night and you're like, you know, yeah. I can't yeah. deal with the hunger very long. So I think it's, uh, you know, from elimination diet, it makes sense. I mean, there's people that are, you know, the, the, the concern about doing it long term is, is something that uh, is uh, something that is, uh, you know, controversial, you know, and I think that's a different discussion. But I think certainly figuring out what's going on with you, uh, there's probably not a better tool out there from a diet standpoint, in my view. I agree. Yeah. Well, we are so grateful that you were able to spend some time with us here today. And before we let you go, we'd love for you to give our listeners two tips for things that they could do to live a healthier life every day. Yeah. I mean, I think the two tips are, you know, I think you probably need to question uh, advice if it hasn't worked for you in the past to so be open-minded to try new things. I think that, uh, you know, you know, clearly diet lifestyle, is the most impactful thing you can do in my view. I think probably in my view, diet is probably number one, exercise, sleep, stress reduction are, are, are the top things. And that's, that's general advice. It's basic advice, but at the end of the day, that's, that's what you need to do. There's no fancy magic pill, magic supplement, magic secret, magic system. It's just eat, you know, you know, real unprocessed food, whether it's animal based or plant based, you know, obviously my bias is more to the animal based side. Uh, and, 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 you know, really just, uh, take ownership of your own health. Your doctor, your doctor has very little buy-in in your health. I mean, I know that's their job, but I mean, they've got 15 minutes with you. Your life is more important and you've got to take care of it yourself. And so you've got to be your own advocate. I love it. Well, where can our listeners find you? All right. So where can they find me? Uh, Instagram is where I, I do most of my damage, you know, as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, that's, that's Sean, S-H-A-W-N, Baker, B-A-K-E-R, 1967, which is you know, my year of birth. I'm on Twitter, SBakerMD. Um, I'm on YouTube. I've got a little bit of a growing YouTube channel. I'm up to around 40,000 subscribers. So I put out a daily video, or at least I have been talking about whatever you know, topic is your. And then, of course, you know, book coming out, Carnivore Diet will be out uh, November 19th worldwide, Amazon, Barnes & Noble's, a bunch of distributors. And so hopefully this will sort of really sort of at least get this argument out in the mainstream that, that this is a viable option for people that are suffering. And, you know, like I said, as uh, we start to get studies on this, we'll hopefully have more physicians that are open-minded enough to try it. And, you know, we'll see the results that I've been seeing and, you know, hopefully others that also are doing this are seeing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on board. Thank you guys very much. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you have questions or would like us to discuss a certain topic, please feel free to email us at everydaywellnesspodcast at gmail.com. You can find out more about Kelly at kellydonahuephd.com and more about Cynthia at cynthiatherlow.com. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFOS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.